very grateful. It's a great joy to be with you this morning. If you're new with us, we are in a study of the earliest Christian document. It's a letter that was written by Paul to a group of churches in a particular region. It's called the Letter to the Galatians. If you have an analog Bible, you can open it up, you know, a print version, and uh, follow along. And uh, you can follow along, of course, in your device. The verses will also be up here on the screen. And we are looking this morning at why Paul is writing to these folks. He is securing them in the truth of the gospel. There were two great threats that were subverting and undermining the message of the good news of what God had done for them in Jesus, forgiving their sins freely through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and then by his Holy Spirit, transforming their lives so that they lived an entirely new and different kind of life. And there were two great threats that were undermining that. On the one hand, there was legalism that suggested to these folks that faith in Jesus was an insufficient basis for standing before God as one of his children. Yes, you gotta have faith in Jesus, but in addition to that, there's all these other ceremonies and rituals. You're going to have to add to that in order for you to be a true child of God. And that was called legalism. But on the, at the other end of the spectrum was the problem of licentiousness, which simply said, well, now that you're right with God, not on the basis of anything you have done, that you can go on living any way you wish to live. And you can live like hell and go to heaven. What a deal. And so in both cases, the gospel ends up denied. On the one hand, on the one hand, saying you're gonna have to get on this treadmill of trying to do enough to hopefully find that God will in the end put the good housekeeping seal of approval on you and say you can come in, you've done enough. Or on the other hand, as if God does not care enough, he does not love us enough to transform us out of the kingdom of self so that we begin to bear the image of Jesus. Both of those things were issues from which they need to be liberated. And so Paul is reminding them of what it means to be truly free in Christ. And we want to look this morning at that issue of freedom. What does freedom really look like when it comes to living as a follower of Jesus. So let's read together Galatians chapter five, verses 13 and 14, central text right in the middle of this great chapter. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending the Apostle Paul and thank you that this message of freedom and freedom in Christ is so needed by us today. And we pray that you would by that same Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write these words, be at work in us so that we might know Christ and follow him. And we thank you for this. Amen. Philip Gorsky is a Yale sociologist. He's the author of the book, Where Do Morals Come From? And he 
notes in that book, we cannot be relativists every day. And what he's saying is that relativism doesn't work. Now, he begins by noting that in the culture, the society in which we live, there is no transcendental, agreed-upon basis for what makes right and wrong anymore. No one can say what is right and wrong. That is the collective judgment of society. He says, there is no satisfactory social theory for why people, this is an interesting way to put it, are always judging and evaluating each other. Now, I know nobody sitting here this morning has a problem with judging other people. (laughs) We've already been doing it on the way in, haven't we? Right? We judge ourselves. We judge others. We're constantly evaluating. We hear something that's taken place, and we go, well, that was evil. That's wicked, like the shooting in Jacksonville. We hear about somebody who is doing something corrupt in government. We go, that's wicked and that's evil. We, we hear some, somebody has cheated others in a business transaction. We go, that's terrible. Someone has been robbed of their life savings through the dishonesty, the lack of integrity in the business realm. And we go, that's horrible. That's, but why, on what basis do we say it's horrible, it's evil, it's wicked? We know we can't be relativists tomorrow morning. Even if we think moral relativism is the way we would prefer to live with regard to our own standing. We would love to interpret freedom as being, I can do whatever I want to do. But in fact, that doesn't work. If you drive 125 miles an hour in a 35 mile an hour zone, someone is going to say something. You're going to be stopped, and thank God you're going to be stopped. If you lie and you cheat in business, eventually that will catch up with you. If you sexually harass or malign someone, eventually that will catch up with you. If you live in immorality, eventually that takes a toll because, as the scriptures say, the wages of sin is death. But as soon as you mention that there must be a standard of morality, our entire society moves into outrage mode. It says, no, how dare you impose on us a standard? But in fact, the standard does exist. The standard exists in the being of the creator who fashioned us in his image. So that down inside of us, even though we suppress it, and we try to push it down out of view, deeply written within us is the awareness. And we co- you can call it conscience, you can call it many different things, is the awareness that when we are doing wrong, we know it is wrong. But there's not just something written into our hearts about this. There's an external objective standard, the law of God. And Paul says the entire law of God is fulfilled in this commandment, what? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. That takes us outside of ourselves, outside of the idea that we can do just whatever we want to do in the name of freedom. It is not Christian freedom to do whatever you want to do. That's an atheistic definition of freedom. In the Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky, of course, famously wrote, 
that without God, everything is permitted. If you take God out of the mix, then from a philosophical standpoint, a foundational standpoint, who's to say that hating someone on the basis of their social standing or the color of their skin or their faith or the lack of their faith is wrong? There is an objective standard and it's God himself and you and I are made in his image and he gives us his commands. And Paul says, you're called to freedom, but don't think that freedom, which is from sin and death and the penalty of sin, is for nothing. Another philosopher, current philosopher, Terry Eagleton, he notes that most people's definition of freedom today is a little bit like a particle of dust dancing in the light. It's just being blown around. So it's not rooted, it's not tethered. And here's the thing about that particle of dust. It, it's not going anywhere in terms of purpose. It has no purpose. That's not what freedom is in the Bible. Freedom is not untethered from a particular purpose because you're not only freed from, brothers and sisters, you are freed for something. You see, if you've had chains broken in your life, chains of death, chains of shame, chains of guilt, all of that's broken, now you're free, you're free for something. If you're free from legalism, and the idea that somehow, by your own efforts, you can make yourself acceptable to God, that's good. You know you're free from that. You don't have to live under shame. Paul summarizes this in a different letter in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. He says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. By grace. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's not the wages, something that you came up with. It's not your idea. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that, even the faith is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's not the result of works, lest anyone should boast. But at the end of that comes this next sentence, verse 10. For, for, you are God's workmanship. You're God's work. You're not saved by your works, but you are God's work. And you are created in Christ Jesus for good works so that you can walk in them. So are we saved by our works? No, but we are saved for them. We are saved for a completely new way of living. Eagleton calls the modern definition of freedom negative freedom. All people are concerned about is what I'm free from. You cannot tell me what to do. You can't tell me how to live. If you or anyone else impose on me what I am supposed to do or how I am supposed to be, you have taken away my freedom. But that, brothers and sisters, is not how the Bible describes freedom. And of course society defines it that way because society, more widely considered, has taken God out of the mix. We push God out of our minds and out of our thoughts. We push God away from every aspect of our life in an effort to do what Adam and Eve originally wanted to do. Listen to what the serpent said. You will be gods. No, you will be as God, knowing good and evil. The word knowing there means determining for yourself. You'll be like God. You'll get to make your own rules. Isn't that a delicious lie? 
I can make my own rules. I can live as I please. But the problem is that our own rules emerging from our own finite minds, our own rules emerging from the internal twist that's in our soul are always broken. And they can never bring life. God steps into the midst of this situation with both the cross of Christ and the spirit of Christ. The cross of Jesus answers the claims of God's law for justice. You and I have sinned. We do deserve the penalty of death. The wages of sin is death. But Christ has taken our place on the cross. But that's not the end of the matter. Christ has died, Christ has been buried, Christ has been raised, he's at the right hand of the Father, and he pours out the Holy Spirit. And so our need for transformation is answered by the Spirit of Christ. Our need for forgiveness is answered by the cross of Christ, and our need for change so that we become loving people is answered by the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to live, with inside, live inside of us to bring us into union with Christ. Paul talked about this earlier in the letter. He says in chapter two that I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Do you hear the I? It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So at either end of that sentence, we find the cross of Christ, that we're crucified with him, and he loved us and gave himself up for us, but between those two ends of what Paul's saying is this reality, Christ is in us. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means that Christ has forgiven you. You've put your faith in Christ. But it also means that God has put the Holy Spirit in you so that he is working in you, changing you, so that you are more and more becoming like Christ. Now. That means that living as a Christian, you're gonna live with internal conflict. People are always pointing out and calling what's going on around us a culture war. All these different values which are competing for supremacy and all these different causes which are pursuing you for their, your attention and your, your, your giving, your energy. All to that, this culture war that's going on. Watch the news, get angry. Be involved in that war. But you know where the culture war really is? The culture war isn't out here. The culture war is in here. It's down inside of me. It's inside of you. Jesus said it's not what comes into us which defiles us. It's what comes up out of us. He says it's out of the heart comes immorality, fornication, adultery, cursing, all of the, and theft. It's all the stuff. That the, the enemy we discover is where? The enemy is within. But God sends his Holy Spirit, listen to this, on a search and destroy mission to go into your heart and seek out all those areas of our lives which are not looking like Jesus and he comes to change them. And when Jesus comes to change you, by the way, he doesn't come to dust. When he comes to move into your house, he doesn't look around and go, oh, oh, this is lovely. It just needs a sweep. Just needs a little polish. Oh, no, no, no. If you invite Jesus into the, the 
home of your heart. He, it's going to be demo day. It is Chip and Jojo. Jesus is coming in and he's tearing stuff out. And you're sitting there going, oh, Jesus, I'm so glad you came to my house today. Have a seat. I'll pour you some tea. And Jesus says, better get a hard hat. Buckle up, pal. Because I'm tearing stuff out. Pretty soon, out comes the kitchen. Out comes the bedroom. He's throwing TVs out. He's everything. The floor is coming up. You go, what are you doing? And Jesus goes, I'm, I'm giving you a new life. I, I just wanted you to dust up my old one and make it better. This is what people sometimes think becoming a Christian means. Jesus is a kind of talisman, a good luck charm, a little demi-deity for their dashboard so that if something goes wrong, Jesus will fix it. Jesus is a handyman. Jesus is a life coach. Jesus, Jesus is a physical trainer. Jesus will make you fit. He will give you your best life now. That's not what, that's not what he's doing. Jesus may call you to himself and it make your life, wait for it, worse, worse. Many people have come to Jesus for thousands of years and they died martyrs. How many people would answer that altar call? All of you would like to follow Jesus? Please um, raise your hands and you will, you will become a martyr. You too can be burned at the stake. I see those hands. How many people would answer that? And yet Dietrich Bonhoeffer said when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is why Paul writes here in this letter, the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. This is a little later on in verse 17. The spirit, what is contrary to the flesh. These are in conflict with each other. Listen to this. So that you are not to do whatever you want. Oh, friends, there's the culture war. It's not on Twitter and TikTok. It's in your heart. It's right here. What's the answer? The cross of Christ, which says you're forgiven, and the spirit of Christ, which says I am making you new. Now, friends, when Paul was writing this, he was not writing it to a, a group of people who were on social media. But the message which is for us today is true because it was just as relevant then. You see, debates about what freedom means are not new. Paul's writing, of course, in the ancient classical world. In the first century, the heirs of Greek philosophy, Roman power, they saw freedom in very different terms than what the Bible says. It's not new that we have a different version. The cynics, just going to give you Greek and Roman ideas on freedom here for a second. The cynics, philosophical school, believed that freedom consisted of the absence of any human authority. You were only under the gods. They were you know, nobody, just, just the gods, get the, they were the get the government out of my life crowd. Some of you would love to be cynics. The Stoics, the Stoics, they believed that freedom meant having no human attachments or circumstances that negatively impact you. They're the get the negative people out of your life crowd. If there's anybody in your life who says negative things to you, they're not your true friend. You need to get rid of them. This, they, they, that's who they were. They were, the, they were the, uh, the folks who only wanted peaceful conversations. Epictetus believed that freedom meant self-determination based on self-knowledge. Look down inside of yourself. That's who you really are. Be yourself. Very popular mode of thinking today. 
The Epicureans were intensely anti-religious. They believed that freedom was the absence of pain and the pursuit of a withdrawn and simple life where no one could get to you. These were people with a tiny house on a, a mountain in North Carolina where everything was tranquil and it was no pain and just pleasure. That's what they believed real freedom was. And some of you are going, that's my retirement plan. Stop messing with me. <laughs> of course, there were the hedonists. The hedonists believed that freedom meant the absence of any moral or ethical or legal restraint on personal power and pleasure. Don't restrain me. Don't restrict me. No one can tell me what to do, what I can have or what I cannot have or who I can have. There are no boundaries on my desires. Very popular. And they're not new. But the gospel answers the ancients with this. The gospel says you have forgotten the real meaning of freedom because you have forgotten eternity. You are living in whatever way you're defining freedom incorrectly this way. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. There's only one problem with eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Here's the first, well, there's two problems. Here's the first problem, you don't die. Because then if you eat, drink, and be merry and you don't die, you've got to pay off the credit card. You gotta pay the bill. But here's the other problem, you do die. Eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow you die because what they're really saying is in this materialist universe where there is no God, there are no eternal consequences. But what if there are? What if as the writer of Hebrews says, it's appointed unto a man once to die and then the judgment, and we're accountable before a holy and just and righteous God? Then you've forgotten eternity. Paul himself says there are Christians who, again, have focused their Christianity only on this life. And he says, if we, in our faith in Jesus, have made him about this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. We want our lives to be good. We want our families to be tremendous and joyful and peaceful. And we want our businesses to prosper. We want our bodies to be healthy. We want everything to go well. And honestly, there are many people who think that if their bodies aren't in good health and their family isn't together and their finances aren't working, that somehow God has forsaken them. But the truth is God is concerned about your eternal holiness more than he is about your temporal happiness. Do not turn Jesus, don't reduce him down into somebody who showed up on the scene just to make life now better. Jesus came to give you the gift of eternal, everlasting life. And that is infinitely more important than any of the other things we may imagine right now are ultimate. But it answers the legalists too. The good news of Jesus answers the legalists because Christ paid it all. The legalist who says faith in Jesus is necessary, but your faith in Jesus has to add to it all of these other religious requirements. You have to do these readings or perform this ritual or say it this way and don't say it that way and not eat these foods or whatever other requirements people want to tack on and say this is what it actually means to be a Christian. No, Christ paid it all. The legalist says Jesus has paid for our sins, but, but it's not sufficient 
There's more that we have to add to the equation. But as William Temple, the great Archbishop of Canterbury said, the only thing I contribute to my salvation is the sin from which I must be saved. Jesus paid it all, my friends, at the cross. But the gospel answers the licentious as well. Because not only did Christ pay it all, Christ bought it all. Christ bought it all. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, you were bought with a price. You were purchased with Christ's blood. Therefore, glorify God with your body. He's talking about our sexual relationships. He's talking about the priority of our finances. He's talking about whether or not we are not slaves to sin, but slaves to self. Whose kingdom are we building? Friends, listen to this. You prayed the Lord's Prayer this morning. Right, in the, right at the heart of that prayer are three words. Thy kingdom come. It does not say my kingdom come. It's not, Lord, bring my kingdom. Friends, my kingdom, and this is gonna be such good news to so many of you, my kingdom is not coming. Neither is yours. At the heart of the Christian faith is thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, we are bought with a price. We've been bought with the blood of Jesus. We are not our own. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way. My only hope in life and in death is that I belong in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved me and bought me with his blood. Christ is the liberator, and he says this is why freedom for the Christian has an entirely different meaning. We are not just freed from shame, freed from guilt, freed from the treadmill that says jump on there and keep running and maybe God will accept you. We're not just free from legalism, we are freed for a life of love. Look at it again. Brothers and sisters, you're called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. That's just another form of slavery, slavery to self. But serve one another humbly in love, for the whole law is fulfilled in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, well, Pastor, what does that love look like? I like messages about love, love. I like love. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it in a great sermon called The Weight of Glory. He preached it at St. Mary's Church in the High Street in Oxford. Lewis put it this way. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own personal or rather potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor the load, the weight, the burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it. And the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror 
and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one of these two destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, those are mortal. And their life is, compared to ours, the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. What does it mean to love your neighbor? It is to remember that they are made in God's image and they are destined for eternity. And we are helping one another to one of two possible destinations every single day. The person we want to curse at who cut us off in traffic. The person we'd rather close our heart against who is in need. The person whose husband or wife we would rather steal than be satisfied in the relationship we're in. The person we're using, the people we're exploiting. To love our neighbors means to cease from all of that, to love them differently, to sacrifice ourselves. Rather than viewing people as a utility to satisfy us, we understand that we are here as witnesses to Christ. What does it mean to love? We use that word so loosely. I love football. I love dinner out. I love brunch. Some of you are making plans right now. I love the Marlins, I love the Cubs, I, I, I love the Dolphins, I love the Packers, and I love my wife. And your wife goes, what? What, it's the same word, You're, what? But the ancients had, of course, several different words for love. They had, they had storge, family love, and they had eros, sexual love, a beautiful gift from God. They had filio, brotherly love. It's, why, it's where the name Philadelphia comes from, the city of brotherly love. As you know, overflowing with affection. <laughs> but none of those are the words Paul uses. Paul uses a special word, agape. Agape, sacrificial love. Love. What is love? Love is sacrifice. And where is that scene? On the cross. Christ, Christ comes. Why? You sang it earlier. For God so agaped. God so self-sacrificially loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. And my friends, when that strikes you and you know that God has loved you, and paid the price for your sin, and you have assurance, when that love strikes you and you realize, 
I can't live for the kingdom of self anymore. I'm not here for pursuing my own pleasures. It's not about my kingdom come. It's about thy kingdom come. Then you're changed dramatically. Everything shifts. Christianity isn't just a set of propositions you check off in your head. It's a new regeneration of the heart so that you love others rather than self. It is a change. It happened to Charles Wesley great hymn writer, he met Christ. And he was astonished by the love that had captured him. He wrote, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused him pain for me, who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon, flamed with light. My chains fell off. My soul was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me. My friends, that quickening, life-giving burst of light through the Holy Spirit is here now to penetrate the hardest heart, to break every chain, not simply to say you're forgiven, though that is such good news, but to say there is a path ahead, the path of freedom, the path of love, the Jesus path. Won't you join me on it? I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amen? Let's stand up and give glory to God. Lord, I do pray that you would, by your Spirit, work in us now, that the chains would fall off and our hearts would be free, and we would go forth and follow thee through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's sing and bless the Lord together.